again, Happy New Year to you. How many of you guys out there made a New Year's resolution? Can I get a show of hands really quickly? How many of you made a New Year's resolution that actually had a SMART goal attached to it? Anyone? Maybe not so much. Anyway, over the years, I have made probably over, I don't know, 20 different New Year's resolutions. The first New Year's resolution I made was at New Year's of my senior year of high school. I had been close with a group of guy friends. Interestingly, it's a group of guys from my church. We all ended up being pastors, which is very weird. But uh, my first New Year's resolution with this group of guys was to not drink any carbonated beverages for one year. Now, I'm from South Carolina, and I thought eating at Cracker Barrel was healthy. About 75% of my liquid intake was Coke, and so this was a giant deal for me. It may sound like nothing to you, but it was big for me. So I did that New Year's resolution successfully. The night of the next uh, New Year, you know, when we celebrated the New Year, we got together with a bunch of different people. I got a Cheerwine and a Dr. Pepper and a Coke, and everybody said, oh, you're going to hate it. It's going to taste terrible. And uh, I took the first sip of cheer wine, and I was like, this is nectar from the heavens. It was as good as it gets. I loved it, and unfortunately still do. Anyway, over the years, I've done a series of other New Year's resolutions. One year, I drank nothing but water for the whole year. And so it was great for my body, I'm sure. People would ask me, like, how do you feel? And I would say, tired. And I literally, that year that I was drinking only water, I would dream about coffee. Very interesting to dream about coffee. One year, I decided to do a vegetarian diet, not philosophically, but just I thought, hey, that might be good for me to do. And uh, so I did a vegetarian diet for a year, and uh, so I've done all these different things. Some of you guys have uh, done New Year's resolutions in the past, and some of them have been successful. Some of them have not been so successful. But uh, the core, or at least the root word of that, that term resolution is resolute. It's a determination to do something. We're going to be doing a four-week series starting today called God's Resolutions. And the idea is, what is God determined to do? What, are we, what can we tell about his resolutions, about what he is resolute about in Scripture? Today, we're going to be looking at the fact that God's resolution is to forgive us and to restore us. He's determined to pursue us and offer us forgiveness and restoration. Before we jump in, let me take a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, for pursuing us. Uh, thank you for very clearly offering us forgiveness. Thank you for very clearly offering to restore us. Um, Father, I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would be louder to us than our own psychologies. Father, I pray that your word would be louder to us than the, the voice of culture. And Father, in the end, I pray that we would trust you and that your offer to forgive us is good and it's true and it can be um, trusted in. And so, Father, I pray that we would find our security and our safety in this forgiveness and this restoration that you offer us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So recently I read an article about a man named Melvin Burns. And uh, Melvin Burns is a pig farmer in Nova Scotia. And he not only had pigs, but he had chickens as well. And uh, the reason that he popped up sort of on my news feed is uh, that he was robbed several times. The first time that someone robbed him, they took six pigs and 40 chickens. Now, I have no idea how you steal six pigs and 40 chickens, but it was remarkable that they stole this stuff and got away with it, and he was, of course, bummed because that adds up to quite a bit of money these days. And then the next month, he was robbed again. This time, however, instead of stealing livestock, they stole some tools from his farm. And so, in frustration, he uh, got online onto Facebook, and he sent out sort of a message. And into that message, he basically said three things. One, he said, anybody that can give me sort of a tip 
that can help me get my tools back or find my livestock again, I will give to them five pounds of my best bacon. That's a, quite a reward. And the other two things he said were equally interesting and maybe more uh, weighty in terms of the offer. The second thing he said is that he offered to forgive whoever had stolen his things. And then the third thing that he offered is he said he offered them a job. And in it he said this. He said, please, and this is a quote, if you need money and are close to our farm, offer your labor, offer your time constructively. It can earn you money, respect, and a future in the community as opposed to behind bars. I will offer you much for free and better things to do with your time, and that's no bull. And I think by bull, he was, it was like a farm joke or something. Anyway, here's what Melvin offered in response to being wronged. He offered five pounds of bacon, he offered forgiveness, and he offered restoration. And it's those last two things, forgiveness and restoration, that we see in 1 John verses 5 through 10, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. So I'm going to read those verses really quickly, and you can just follow along with me if you will. This is the message we have heard from him, and in this case, him is Jesus, and declare to you, God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, in this case God, out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So what do we see in this passage? How can we sum it up? There's really more here that we can touch today. And so I'm going to use the following statement that is comprised of three different primary points. And those statements are this, although we will stumble... If we're truly children of God, then our lives will reflect our Father's heart or our Father's character. And when we inevitably do stumble, God offers to forgive us and make us whole. We will stumble. Our lives should reflect God's life and his heart. And then finally, God offers to forgive us and make us whole. Let's start off with that first point that we will indeed stumble. Look at verses 8 and 10. Verses 8 and 10 say this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So at this point, context is important. One of the things that I did in preparing for this sermon was I read through the entire book of 1 John several different times and really kind of tried to look at what was in there. John, who is writing this letter, or in some respects a sermon, is the bishop of the church in Ephesus, and he's writing this letter to the churches of Asia Minor. It's clear that in this context, some false teaching— and some false teachers have arisen, and it seems that one facet of their false teaching is that they're denying that Jesus was the Son of God. It was probably some form of Gnosticism which viewed flesh as evil and spirit as good, and therefore they're saying, surely Jesus couldn't have become human. Another facet of their false teaching was to deny that they were sinful, or to deny that they could continue to sin after becoming Christians. It seems as though John was writing to correct both of these wrong ideas, but primarily the second in this particular passage. In verse 8, he clearly states, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, sin is a continual reality in the lives of believers. And if we don't believe that, then we're deceiving ourselves. In fact, 
I would even go so far as to argue that the more mature we become in our walk with the Lord, the more mature we become as Christians, the more our eyes are actually opened to the depth and the breadth of our sin. It seems that that's exactly what the Apostle Paul was saying later in his life when he wrote to Timothy saying, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And he says that in present tense. And then in verse 16, he says, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now, this was one of uh, Paul's last letters. It was as he was aging. And what he's saying there is he's saying, I'm still incredibly sinful, right? This is not a past tense. It's a present tense reality. I see my sin more deeply now than ever before. C.S. Lewis affirms this line of thinking in mere Christianity when he says the following. He says this, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows he's not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he's all right. This is common sense, really. You understand sleep when you're awake, not while you're sleeping. You can see mistakes in arithmetic when your mind is working properly. While you're making them, you cannot see them. You can understand the nature of drunkenness when you're sober, not when you're drunk. Good people know about both good and evil. Bad people do not know about either. So John makes it clear in this passage that sin will continue to be a reality in the lives of even the most mature believers. And then Paul and C.S. Lewis indicate that as we mature, we'll actually become more aware of the depth and the breadth and the pervasiveness of our sin. The less self-aware that we are, the less we see our sin. Or the less self-aware we are, the more we think of sin as simply maybe breaking the rules. That's another way of thinking about it. And at a very basic level, this actually isn't incorrect. We shouldn't lie. We shouldn't steal. We shouldn't murder or be unfaithful to our husband or wife, right? We shouldn't do any of those things. Untold chaos has entered the world as a result of those sins, and we should absolutely beware of them. However, the more self-aware that we become, the more we realize the nuance and the pervasiveness of that sin that remains in us. That's why it's possible for the rich young ruler and for the Pharisees to keep the letter of the law, right, the outward sort of pieces of the law, but still be far from God and, in fact, actually be committing idolatry, right? Tim Keller calls it the sin under the sin, right? There's, there's an external sin, but beneath that external sin, there's always actually something deeper, and often that thing is idolatry. It's something we love more or need more than God. Here's something else that Keller says uh, in a, a talk or an article called Talking About Sin in a Postmodern Age. He says this, the Pharisees, while not bowing to literal idols, were looking to themselves and their moral goodness for their justification. And therefore, they were actually breaking the first commandment, which of course is, thou shalt have no other gods before me, right? They were looking uh, for salvation to their own justification, right? To their own good works. Their morality was self-justifying motivation and therefore spiritually pathological. At the bottom of all their law-keeping, they were actually breaking the most fundamental law of all. When we define and describe sin to postmodern people, that might be our children, it might be college students we're in friends with, it might be us, when we think about it ourselves, we must do so in a way that challenges not only prostitutes, 
but also Pharisees to change. Part of what Keller is saying there is you've got to understand sin. Sometimes we sin like dogs, and sometimes we sin like cats, right? And I think you can tell which is which. Some of us are like Pharisees in our sin. It's more cat-like. Instead of trusting God's offer of forgiveness, we seek to complement the righteousness of Christ with our own righteousness or goodness in the hopes that it will be enough to satisfy God. What we fundamentally believe at a deeper level, not an objective level necessarily, is that God's righteousness through Jesus was about this much, and if we simply add our stuff to it, then maybe that's enough to get us where we need to be. Others of us are more blatant or dog-like in our sin patterns. Either way, John reminds us in this passage that no matter where we are in our spiritual journey, sin will be our constant companion. Sin, however, is not our only reality, and it's definitely not our final reality. John makes a second point in this passage, and it's this. It's although we will stumble, if we are truly children of God, then our lives will reflect our Father's heart. Our lives will reflect our Father's character. Look at verses 5 and 6. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. So those of you who are familiar with the gospel of John, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, which this John also wrote, you'll recognize the apostles' use of light and darkness here. And if you were to read the rest of 1 John, you'd see lots of other references that sort of went back to the book of John as well. But John here is saying that God is light, and in him is no darkness. His assumption is that if we're in fellowship with God, or another way of saying this is if we're truly Christians, then our lives will mirror the heart of our heavenly Father, right? So if we're really in a relationship with God, if we really are believers, then we're actually going to look like our Father. One of the greatest compliments that I get sometimes is when people go, you know, your son looks just like you. And uh, if that means in stature and that they're short, then that's a bummer. But in some other ways, it's encouraging, you know, to think that my kids look like me. And so if we claim to be in a relationship with God, we should look like God. John goes on to say, if we claim to be Christians, but walk in the darkness, then we are liars. And I actually, I actually really like John's forcefulness here. And the reason why I like it is that throughout his writings, he's always very pastoral. He, he was uh, the bishop of this church in Ephesus, and so you see his pastor's heart coming through in all these places. He's nice, he's encouraging, he's kind, he's the gospel, you know, he's the author who writes about love all the time. But in this case, he's tough. And part of me loves the fact that he's tough here. And I would guess that the reason he's pretty tough here and pretty directive here is because he realizes that something really, really big is at stake. And it's either a relationship with God or separation from God. And I think he realizes that those are the two things that are at stake in this discussion. In this letter, John actually gives three different tests to ascertain the validity of our relationship with God. He gives a moral test, he gives a doctrinal test, and he gives a social test. And so here's what he says in chapter 2, verse 24. He says this, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And that's the moral test. Like, if we claim to know God, if we claim to be saved, then, you know, that we're actually going to largely obey his commandments. In chapter 2, verse 22, there's a doctrinal test. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Again, this is particular to the false teaching that was going on in the church at that point in time. And then finally, in chapter 4, verse 20, there's a social test. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a 
liar. So those of us that look at these three tests and pass these three tests, consistently obeying God's commands, consistently loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, consistently believing that God's declaration about his son, if we're doing that, then we are walking in the light and our lives reflect the heart of our heavenly father. That's again, that's exactly what John is saying here. Now, very quickly, notice that I didn't say that we are perfectly being obedient or that we are perfectly loving our brothers and sisters in Christ or that we are perfectly believing in God's declaration about his son. Again, verse 8 of chapter 1 said this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so although we will stumble, if we are truly children of God, our lives at least will reflect our father's heart and reflect our father's character. Third point we see in this section of scripture today, when we do inevitably stumble, and again, that's part of the point here is that we will, God offers to forgive us and to restore us or make us whole. Verse 9 is a verse that most of us know very well, or at least we've have heard in some ways, and, and John pens this. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. So throughout this letter, John is really emphasizing the importance of holiness, right? That's something that sometimes we lose sight of in our age. We lose sight of it in the church sometimes. And in particular, the holiness that he's talking about is loving our brothers and sisters in Christ and obeying God's commandments. That's, to a large degree, walking in the light. It's the idea of, uh, of living like um, or following after God's heart. And our holiness in these areas is evidence of our relationship with God. It's not what earns us a relationship with God, but it is evidence of a relationship with God. And honestly, as we read about how our lives should reflect God's, we should probably become a little bit nervous, at least I did. It should cause us to look more deeply at our lives and our hearts, because at least for me, I know I don't love my brothers and, and sisters in Christ as I ought to. I know that I don't obey God's commands perfectly, and I definitely often and regularly doubt the sufficiency of who Jesus is and his sacrifice for me, right? There are all sorts of ways in which I fail those constantly. But God, as we have seen in verse 9 here, he knows our failures and he offers us forgiveness. This passage, and again, verse 9 in particular, make it clear that we will fail to do each of those things perfectly. And when we do fail, when we stumble, God offers us mercy. Not because our sin isn't that big of a deal, but rather because God loves us that much. F.F. Bruce, in uh, his book called The Gospel and Epistles of St. John, writes this, We may be assured of forgiveness from God, not because he is easygoing and indulgent, but because he is faithful to his promise and righteous in the application of the sacrifice of his son. Right? God's not, not laid back about sin. He's not indulgent about sin. It's not something that he trifles with or chuckles at, but rather the reason that he offers forgiveness is because he is faithful to his promise, and he is righteous in the application of the sacrifice of his son. This is exactly what John wrote or writes at the beginning of this next chapter, chapter 2. We heard Sarah Naff read it this morning, and it says this, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now listen to verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so our sins of 
commission, things that we actively do that break God's law, and our sins of omission, things that we don't do that we ought to do, those sins are so serious that to God that he gave his son as an atoning sacrifice to forgive us, to forgive those sins. So part of what we see in this is that our sin is more serious than we realize, but so is the sacrifice of Christ. That's why in verse 9 and the rest of this letter, uh, that they make it clear that God's forgiveness can be counted on. Verse 9 says, he is faithful and just to forgive us as we trust in the atoning sacrifice of his son. He's faithful because his promises eclipse our performance. And he's just because the value of his son's perfect life and death are more than enough to cover over our bill. But that isn't all that's actually promised to us in verse 9. Not only is Jesus, not only is God faithful and just to forgive us, he's also faithful and just to purify us from all unrighteousness. God's not content just to forgive you. He wants to restore you. He wants to make you whole. He wants to make you more human. Some projects are worth some extra time and some extra attention. Take, for instance, the recent renovation of the famous St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. We have a picture of it up on the screen. Over the years, bombings and fires and general disrepair had corroded the interior and the exterior of this magnificent building for over 125 years, reducing this glorious old cathedral to a ghost of its former glory. Here's how a report in New York Magazine summarized the estimated $177 million restoration project that finished up just a couple years ago. And here's where I'll begin reading the article. The original construction lasted 20 years, from cornerstone to the dedication in 1878. The current restoration took another nine years. More than 150 workers, directed by the architecture firm Murphy, Burnham, and Buttrick, made 30,000 separate interventions, planned and tracked with advanced software, but executed by hand. Workers filled the interior with a city of scaffolding. Specialists climbed it to heal the cracks in its stained glass, fixed shattered bits of its tracery with in invisible puzzle pieces of steel, scour soot off the blackened marble, rebuild the eroded filigree, replace crumbling stones, replaster ribbed vaults, and revivify wooden screens. The most impressive tasks, however, aren't even visible. Replacing the entire cooling and heating system and hooking them up to geothermal wells that have been sunk 2,200 feet below Manhattan's asphalt crust. It's amazing to think about that renovation project. You can see on the left what it used to look like. It was brown and gray, and then on the right, it shines white in the city of New York. Each one of you, each one of you is actually a masterpiece created by God, right? The fact that we are created in God's image means much, much more than we realize. We have no idea the depth and the weight and the gravity of what that means. Each one of you is worth more to God than St. Patrick's Cathedral. It may have cost $177 million to restore, but your forgiveness and your restoration cost the blood of the Son of God, a price that God was more than willing to pay to forgive you and to make you whole. Now this morning, as you look around the room, you see these tables. 
And on the tables on this side of the room, there's bread and there's wine. And on that side of the room, there's bread and there's grape juice. And this is a meal that we call the Lord's Supper. We call it communion. But fundamentally, what this meal represents is the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. What this meal reminds us of, and Jesus commanded us to take this meal, but what it reminds us of is the forgiveness that God offers us through Jesus, right? And so as you take this bread and you dip it into the wine or you dip it into the grape juice, you're making a choice to believe God's word, to hear God's voice. When God's voice says that I am more than willing to forgive you and I am more than able to make you clean. And so this morning, for those of you who trust in Christ alone for your salvation, you have the opportunity and you have um, the option of taking this bread, dipping it into the wine, and viscerally being reminded of this thing that we call the gospel or the good news, that we are offered forgiveness and restoration in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to read the words of institution. I'm going to take a moment and pray, and then I'm going to ask that when you're ready, you get up and you receive the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the inestimable value of the forgiveness and restoration project that you undertook and have offered us in Jesus. Father, I pray that as we look at the arrival of the life of the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus, that we would believe you when you tell us that Jesus' perfect life, death, And resurrection is more than enough to cover over all of our sins, past, present, and future. Father, I pray that we would hear John's command today or his recommendation and that we would confess our sins to you, Father, that we would confess that we have not loved our brothers and sisters as we ought. Father, we have not obeyed you as as we ought. We haven't seen our sin as we ought. But Father, I pray that as we confess those things to you that we can rest knowing that we are offered forgiveness and restoration through you because of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray.